Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a new podcast on the Bible, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. And now here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Dr. Bill Creasy here on Scripture Uncovered, my new podcast for you, my listeners. I am amazed. We launched Scripture Uncovered last week, and we had over a thousand listeners right out of the gate. I had no idea that would happen, but I'm grateful that it did, and I'm grateful to you for tuning in. As I said last week, I'd like to use this podcast to probe Scripture from an intimate, personal perspective, something that I deliberately don't do in my Logos Bible Study classes. In my classes, I take a much more academic approach to Scripture, much as I taught my flagship English Bible as Literature course at UCLA for over 20 years. Here, though, I'd like to take you behind the curtain and look at Scripture from the heart, from my personal perspective, as a Christian, as a dyed-in-the-wool believer. So, this week, I'd like to explore the person of Christ, who He is. This past Saturday, I had the privilege of leading a women's Lenten retreat at St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Newport Beach, California. And we had a great time together. 250 women attended the retreat, and we had a wonderful luncheon catered by the Turnip Rose. The retreat topic was Ruth, a love story. And of course, I taught the book of Ruth, the greatest love story in the entire Bible. Ruth is a love story on many levels. The love between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. The love between Ruth and Boaz, the man who redeems her, her kinsman redeemer. The love between God and Israel and the love between Christ and his bride, the church. In Scripture, the kinsman redeemer plays a unique and very important role. The world of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, is a profoundly tribal, patriarchal world in a time and culture in which men controlled everything. A woman had very few rights and very little power other than what she might wield within her own home. But a woman who lost her husband, a widow, and a woman who had no sons to protect her and care for her, was very vulnerable indeed. Consequently, if a woman's husband died and she had no children, Scripture tells us that the brother of the dead husband had the obligation to marry his brother's widow, and the first son they had would become the legal heir of the dead brother. Now, I'm the oldest of three brothers, and I'm actually the oldest surviving son in the Creasy family. So by golly, I'm the family patriarch. My brothers should kiss my ring. In scripture, I would be head of the entire Creasy clan, owning the bulk of the family estate, such as it is. But if I had married as a young guy, but died before having any children, 
then my brother Don would have the obligation to marry my widow, and the first son they had would become my legal heir. Thus, that child would inherit the entire estate and become patriarch of the family. But by doing so, my brother Don would in effect disinherit himself. Now that's a major issue in the book of Ruth. Boaz is kinsman redeemer to both Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, and to Ruth herself. But although he may disinherit himself, Boaz loves Ruth, and he steps up to the plate. Boaz marries Ruth, redeeming her, and at the same time, redeeming Naomi, and redeeming the property that had belonged to Naomi's dead husband, Elimelech. Now we learn in the story that to be a kinsman redeemer, a person must meet three criteria. Number one, he must have the position to be kinsman redeemer. That is, he must be the next nearest relative. Number two, he must have the resources to be kinsman redeemer. That is, he must be able to write the check that buys back the lost property. And number three, he must be willing to do it. In our story, there was another closer kinsman redeemer, but he was not willing to redeem. He was not willing to put his estate at risk. And thus, he dropped out of the story. Now, Ruth is a wonderful story. It sheds light on our kinsman redeemer, Christ. If Christ is to redeem us, he must also meet the three criteria. Number one, he must be our next nearest relative. That is, he must be both fully God and fully human. Number two, he must have the resources to redeem us. That is, he must be sinless himself if he's to pay the penalty for our sins. And number three, he must be willing to do so. That is, he must grow, go to the cross bearing our sins willingly. That's an important topic as we approach Easter, as we approach Holy Week and the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ. Christ meets all three of these criteria. He is our kinsman redeemer. But we have to sit back and ask, what is Christ's motive for redeeming us? Why would he do it? As Boaz loves Ruth, so does Christ love us. Christ's motive for our redemption is love. Now, as I ponder that, I, I, I want to ask, who exactly is Christ? Who is this one who willingly goes to the cross and dies on our behalf? We gain real insight into who he is in the prologue to the gospel according to John. Now, we know that Jesus left Nazareth and he went to Capernaum and he called 12 disciples, the core group of people who would follow him and become those who are sent, the apostles. 
But who were they? Well, the inner, inner circle, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And we know that James and John, Peter and Andrew, were partners in a fishing business with the father of James and John, Zebedee. And we know that Zebedee's wife, Salome, is Jesus' mother Mary's either sister or sister-in-law. So James and John are Jesus' cousins. Why does he go from Nazareth to Capernaum? He has relatives there, his two cousins, James and John. John, in particular, I get the impression that John, although the other disciples, the other apostles, are about the same age as Jesus, maybe Matthew's a little bit older, uh, he's a tax collector, he's an affluent man, established, but I get the impression that John is maybe 10 years younger than Jesus. After all, we see Jesus and John together at the Last Supper, and John is sitting on Jesus' left, and he has his head on Jesus' shoulder, and he falls asleep. You know, 30-year-old guys don't do that together, but little brothers do. So I think of John as maybe 10 years or so younger, and John was very, very intimate with Jesus. It's only John who is there at the foot of the cross at the crucifixion. All the others had run off, but John is there along with his mother, Salome, and Jesus' mother, Mary, and Mary Magdalene. John is there right to the end. Now, if Jesus dies about A.D. 32, John lives on. And John will die a very old man sometime in his late 80s or early 90s. And John writes his gospel in the late 80s or early 90s. He knows that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are circulating. They've been circulating for 20 years by the time John writes his gospel. And John doesn't attempt to give us yet another version of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John, having pondered all these events for the last 60 years, doesn't tell us what happened. He tells us what it meant. That's the gospel according to John, and it's very personal. In the prologue, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh and lived among us. When my boys were growing up, I would read to them before bed. And I remember reading to my youngest son, Jonathan, reading a Bible story. He liked the story of David and Goliath, the story of Zacchaeus up the tree, uh, the story of Noah and the flood and the rainbow. But I remember reading to him one night, and as I finished and I got up to leave, he said, don't go. And I said, well, why not? He said, I'm afraid. Well, why are you afraid? God's here with you. And Jonathan said, I know God's with me, but I want someone with a face. That brought tears to my eyes. When we look at the gospel according to John at the prologue, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and lived among us. We understand 
that in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God put on a face and stepped into the world. That blows me away. That is astounding. And John was with him the entire time of his public ministry. John was his cousin. They would have grown up together visiting on the holidays. He knew him very well. And John was like a little brother to Jesus. John tells us, he writes an epistle and two personal letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And John writes at the beginning of 1st John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have gazed upon, looked at, and our hands have touched. That which was from the beginning. Well, that recalls John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard. How many times had John been on the road with Jesus and the others, and at night around the campfire, when Jesus finally turned in and the fire's dying down, the embers are glowing, and John heard Jesus' voice as they talk. What did it sound like? Did he have a bass voice, a tenor voice? What did his laugh sound like? John knew. And 60 years later, he says, that which we heard, that which we have seen, he saw Jesus. He saw what he looked like, what his eyes looked like, what his face looked like, his hand gestures. That which we have looked at, or better, gazed upon. Late at night, when Jesus was sound asleep around the campfire, John would simply sit and look at him and gaze upon him. And that which we have touched, he touched the Lord Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, the prologue of John's Gospel, and 1 John, the beginning of 1 John, takes us into a very personal, intimate relationship that John had with Jesus. And that's what we're called to, into a personal, intimate relationship with Christ. You know, being a Christian is not about religion, it's not about rules and regulations, it's not about liturgy, it's not about customs and traditions. All of that is how we do things in the family. But it's not central, it's not primary. What's primary is the person of Christ, who he is and what he did. And he calls us into a personal relationship with himself, one that we live day by day. That's where we're headed. That's who Christ is, and that's who we should be with him as we journey through this pilgrimage of life. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. This new podcast is part of the 30-year journey Dr. Creasy has taken studying and teaching Scripture. Visit LogosBibleStudy.com to learn about more ways to study and travel with Dr. Creasy, from live and online classes to once-in-a-lifetime adventures on Logos teaching tours, where together we explore Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Ireland, Spain, Greece, Italy, and the Mediterranean world. It's an amazing adventure. 
That's logosbiblestudy.com, and you can see more about online classes, live events, and teaching tours. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. So now I'd like to turn to questions that you've sent in. After our first podcast last week, we had an avalanche of questions coming from you, our listeners. So I'd like to turn to them now and address a few of them. Question number one is from David D., one of our listeners, who wrote, How do I light a fire under those in my men's Bible study, the Bible study that I lead? Well, that's a really good question, David, because Bible studies can often be, well, I don't know, uh, a group of people sitting around a table sharing their ignorance. You know, and uh, that's an awful thing to say, but that's often what it is. Well, what do you think about this particular passage? And people say what it is they think. But I think if it, when we put together a Bible study, there, there should be a focus to it. And I think especially for a men's Bible study, something that guys can really identify with, I would teach the story of King David, First and Second Samuel. And I would title the Bible study, David, Warrior, Poet, and King. Oh, it'll be a great study. The story of King David. Jonathan Kirsch wrote a book some years ago titled King David, The Real Life of the Man Who Ruled Israel. And in that book, Jonathan Kirsch writes, at the heart of the book of Samuel, where the story of David is first told, we find a work of genius that anticipates the romantic lyricism and tragic grandeur of Shakespeare, the political wile of Machiavelli, and the modern psychological insight of Freud. And just as much as Shakespeare or Machiavelli or Freud, the frank depiction of David in the pages of the Bible has defined what it means to be a human being. King David is a symbol of the complexity and ambiguity of human experience itself. We can all identify, guys especially, can all identify with David. He was a tremendous warrior, a great king, but he was a deeply, deeply flawed person. And maybe that's why we like him so much. Uh, Abram Leon Shekhar writes, withal, David was a profoundly simple being, cheerful, despondent, selfish, generous, sinning one moment, repenting the next, the most human character in the Bible. And I have to say, like everyone else, from Samuel to Saul to Jonathan, to God himself, when we encounter David in the scriptures, we're charmed by him and we fall under his spell. So I would start with the story of King David with First and Second Samuel, and I'd bring in the Psalms as poetry. 73 of the 150 Psalms are ascribed to David. And as you're working through First and Second Samuel, you can bring in the Psalms that apply to that particular point in the story. Many of those 73 Psalms you can connect to the narrative uh, in 1st and 2nd Samuel. So that's where I would go with it. Hope that helps, David. Oh, by the way, David, hey, I should mention that I just finished teaching a course 
on the story of King David. And that course is now available in the Logos online classroom at logosbiblestudy.com. Uh, you might want to take a look at it. It would be a good way to design your Bible study uh, to have people take the course and then you discuss uh, each lesson in your Bible study. Just wanted to make a note of that. Now, <clears throat> the second question comes from James S. Uh, and he asks, what's the connection between the inscription on Jesus' cross and the name of God revealed at the burning bush? Well, that's good, but it's a bit confused, uh, James. In Exodus chapter 3, that's the burning bush story. Now remember, the Israelites had been in Egypt for 400 years. And anything they may have known about God, about Yahweh, anything they may have known from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of that was nearly half a millennium ago. And the Israelites are living in Egypt, a very sophisticated, dazzling culture that had a pantheon of 80 plus gods. It was a polytheistic culture, as all the cultures of the ancient world were. So anything they may have known about Yahweh, about God, it is at best the faint memory of an old folk tale from a long time ago. Moses included. He grew up in Pharaoh's household, a prince of Egypt. But when God calls him and Moses responds, Moses had murdered someone, you know, the Egyptian slave master who was beating a Hebrew slave, and he got out of Dodge. He's living on the far backside of the desert in the land of Midian. And that's where God calls him from the burning bush. It's at the foot of Mount Sinai. We visit St. Catherine's monastery when we travel to Egypt and we see that very burning bush. God said to Moses, I want you to go back to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, Moses said, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, no, and Moses had several reasons why he couldn't go. And one of them is, well, uh, just a moment, please. Suppose I do go, whom shall I say sent me? Suppose I go back and the Israelites say, the God of your father sent you? Who's he? What is his name? And God replied to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. In Greek, it's ego eimai. I am who I am. Pure being, pure essence, if you will. Well, if we turn over now to the gospel according to John, Jesus is in a very intense conflict with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And we read in John chapter 8, beginning at verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Well, the religious leaders are astonished and they say, you're not yet 50 years old and you saw Abraham? Yeah, right. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, 
before Abraham was born, I am. John is written in Greek, of course, and I am is ego eomai, the very same phrase used by God when Moses asked God who he is, and he said, I am. Here, Jesus claims to be God. And it, the religious leaders didn't miss it. They picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus slipped away from the temple area. So Moses asking God who he is, I am, and Jesus identifying himself as I am, makes the connection between the two. Now the sign that was on Jesus' cross, we have that over in John chapter 18. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they nailed a sign above his head. They nailed a sign that read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now in Hebrew, that would be Yeshua Hanazari Wamelech Hayaduhim. If you look at the first letter of each word, Chuck Missler, Christian apologist in his book, from 1995, The Creator Beyond Time and Space, claims that the first letter of each word is Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Well, that would be really cool if that were the case. It would be a stunning irony. But if we look more closely at the Hebrew grammar, it's not Y-H-W-H, it's Y-H-H-H. Because if it were to be Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, Y-H-W-H, it needs the conjunctive an, but it doesn't have it. It's Y-H-H-H. So it would be nice if it worked out, Y-H-W-H, but it doesn't. I think the question, though, referred to Moses asking God who he is and Jesus identifying himself who he is. So we can't take the YHWH for the sign on Jesus' cross. Grammatically, it just doesn't work. So I'd like to turn now to our third and final question for this podcast. We have David G. writing in and asking, how do I reconcile the God of the Hebrew Scriptures, that is, the Old Testament, who appears to be a vengeful, angry God, with the God of the New Testament, who appears to be a God of love? Well, that's, that's a pretty common question that I get oftentimes in class, especially uh, when I'm teaching the book of Joshua, where the Israelites go into the land of Canaan and basically slaughter everyone who is there, and when I'm teaching First and Second Kings, when we have one killing after another after another, and it sure appears that God is approving, not just approving, but directing uh, those events. So it's a common question and a good one. And I think the answer is stepping back and seeing how we read Scripture, how we understand Scripture. If we look at the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, we have a linear narrative. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, days one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Then we have a recapitulation into day six, that would be Genesis 3, and then we continue our linear narrative. And that narrative will continue 
all the way from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles is a recapitulation into Kings, then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. That's the linear narrative. Everything after that in the Hebrew Scriptures is recapitulation back into the time of the Kings. And then we move, of course, into the New Testament, which picks up the linear narrative with the Gospel according to Matthew. So we have that linear progression across time. Now, I don't think we have one understanding of God in the Hebrew Scriptures and a different understanding of God in the New Testament. You know, in the final book of the Hebrew Scriptures, the very final book, Malachi, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. I, the Lord, do not change. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. So we can take that as an anchor point. God doesn't change. The God we meet in Joshua, the God we meet in Judges, the God we meet in Kings is the very same God we meet in the Gospel according to John. I don't think it's God that changes. It's us, the readers, who change. Us, the authors of Scripture, whose understanding of God changes. Now, by way of analogy, think of your own father. When you were five years old, well, when I was five years old, and I looked at my father standing before me, big, tall fellow, he was like God. He knew everything. Dad could fix anything. He could solve any problem. He could do anything. And then, when I got to be about 16 years old, he was the dumbest man on the face of the earth. Somehow he got really stupid as I got to be 16. But then, after I grew up, after I went away, went off to the Marine Corps for six years, went through a PhD at UCLA, after I was teaching in the university, I really got to know my father. Really, when I was about 35, I began to really know him. He died at 84. And I have to say that by the time I got to be 60, my dad was the smartest man I knew. You know, he didn't change. My understanding of him changed. And I think as we read through Scripture, we see humanity's understanding of God changing as we develop in our relationship with Him. So, we're the one changing, not God. And I think that's a really good way to look at it. So that's our final question for this week. Thank you again for listening. I look forward to uh, being back with you next week. And please do visit LogosBibleStudy.com. Have a look at, uh, at the website and at all the courses live in the online classroom and the wonderful teaching tours that we do as well. Our next one coming up is in May in the footsteps of Paul to Greece. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered with Dr. Bill Creasy. Remember, Scripture Uncovered wants to hear from you, so go to scriptureuncovered.com to submit your questions, and Dr. Creasy might answer them on air. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us reviews and ratings. That's the best way to let us know how we're doing and to spread the word about Scripture Uncovered. That's scriptureuncovered.com. Subscribe on iTunes and leave us a rating and review. See you next week.